Well, this is a Current Yield Grants Interest Rate Observer of the Year, and I am Jim Grant. This is the great Deputy Editor of Grants, Evan Lorenz. Hey, good morning, Evan. Good morning. Now, what the uh, the interval you hear, ladies and gentlemen, is the physical distance between the recording studio here at the Woolworth Building, 233 Broadway in Manhattan, and Evan Lorenz's private off-site office in the borough of Brooklyn. How many miles do you think this is, Evan, between you and me? At, uh, six, maybe five? Uh, something like that, yeah. Yeah, so that, that accounts for the uh, delay. Um, even with modern technology, it takes a long time for sound to get to Brooklyn. That, Evan? Um, the police sirens that I hear at night sometimes argue otherwise. <laughs> yeah, well, and uh, but that's not just the two of us, ladies and gentlemen. It's not just the two of us. We have today uh, Karen Petru, who is the uh, financial consultant and analyst and financial policy analyst par excellence in Washington, D.C., and the author of a book called The Engine of Inequality, and the subtitle, most provocative and most, to evident me, most inviting. The subtitle is The Fed and the Future of Wealth in America. Karen, I'm going to welcome you formally in just one moment, but not before I mention our sponsors. In the first place, as is customary, during as what we know these difficult times of uh, COVID-19. By the way, shouldn't we update this for COVID-19? Like, uh, 21 or something. But anyway, we are sponsored in part by Love and Youth and Spring, as we were a year ago. Keep this up until we stop wearing these stupid masks. Okay, that's one thing. We're also sponsored by ourselves, by Grants Interest Rate Observer, and particularly by the upcoming uh, Grants Fall Conference on October 19th. But Karen, welcome to uh, Current Yield. Thank you, Jim. It's a pleasure to be with you and Evan. I can be reacquainted with Karen's work Yes, it was the fall of 2019, Karen, when uh, you wrote something in the Financial Times, your most prolific commentator on television and in the press. And I, I remember it was a it was a terrifically argued piece on what the Fed is doing, not for us, mind you, but to us. It had to do with the Fed's role in perpetuating, indeed, perhaps at some level, creating immense disparities in the distribution of health and uh, well and uh, in the creation of what you call nationalization. Could you begin by helping us to understand that word? Would people flip around uh, blithely and glibly, but it must uh, know it means something to you because you dwell on it in this very good book. Oh, thank you, Jim. It means a lot to me because I think when we, we I, most of us, I believe, recognize that disparities in income and wealth have made America a very different country than the one in which we grew up, at least when I grew up, um, in, in the way back. Um, when I graduated from college in 1975, the United States had rich people and poor people, but we had a vibrant middle class in which from the 25th to the 75th percentiles in income and wealth, people were pretty comfortable. And there was terrific, very strong intergenerational mobility in which you expected, parents expected their children to do better than they did, and mostly they did. Back then, in 1975, GDP was evenly distributed. Productivity rewarded, evenly rewarded the rich and the poor. As of the last data, I've seen top 1% in the United States now receives 312 percentage points more, percent more than it did in terms of national GDP than it did in 1975. It's a very unequal distribution of the rewards of hard work. And that's changed a lot about America. It's changed our political system. It's changed our health system, as we saw in COVID. And my book is about how 
it has both changed the way the financial system works and the role of the Fed. The Fed. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jim. Please. You, you, you say we are financialized. That sounds like weaponized in some way. <laughs> what does financialized mean? Financialized means an economy in which wealth results not from hard work or the invention of uh, new goods and services, new types of cars, new types of machines, a Boeing airplane, or a Ford motor car. It results from coming up with CDOs squared, uh, or companies such as Archegos and highly leveraged total return swaps. That's how you make a lot of money in an economy. And in the economy, output in terms of Goods is far less significant than services, and financial services in the services category dominate income and therefore equality. That's a financialized economy, and it's one the United States has become. Sure, I notice you uh, you omitted uh, SPACs. <laughs> Evan, do you have anything to say about SPACs? Oh, only about 500 things, which is the number of SPACs that are outstanding right now. Was, I only left the them out because I forgot, but they're <laughs> really worth mentioning. Evan, what was the one that so struck you yesterday as we were going to press? A canoe. It's an electric vehicle hopeful. They merged with us back in December. They had their first inaugural earnings call on Monday, uh, which was two days before this. Um, in their original deal presentation, they said, we're going to build platforms for other OEMs, and Honda's our first partner, and they're going to buy our you know, uh, cars from us. Right. We're also going to sell cars, and we'll also sell cars on a subscription. Uh, on the conference call, they said, we fired our uh, CFO. The CEO was not on the call, which led to some analysts asking, is he still work for the company? They have said they've de-emphasized selling to other OEMs. It's not clear whether they still have a deal with Honda, and they said the subscription model is kind of expensive and they don't really want to do it anymore. So within three months, they basically have changed their business model, or they discovered the business model didn't work, but they haven't had a single dollar in sales yet, so um, they still have time to figure it out. Yeah, but the, 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 wasn't the punchline that after this, the stock was down like 25% or something, after all that, the market cap was still $2 billion? It was still $2 billion after falling 20, 20% yesterday. Well, Karen, <laughs> Hope springs this eternal. What, this, is what you, this is what you're talking about, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's very different if they were actually making the cars and selling <laughs> the cars. That, but they're not. They're selling whatever it is they're selling, which is not well, cars. How, how do we trace this back to the, uh, the Federal Reserve? How, how, does it, how does it get back to the Fed? The Fed, you know, the Fed didn't invent this particular interesting specimen of spectrum. It didn't uh, actually promote the shares on CNBC. What, what does the Fed have to do with this? The Fed has to do with the fundamental market dynamic that empowers SPACs um, and has, in fact, empowered the overall dramatic rise in equity markets uh, and the financial markets since 2010. Once you have a, a system in which the Fed puts rates negative in real terms and takes trillions of safe assets, treasuries, out of the financial markets, you have a system in which the only way to earn a return is through speculation, yield chasing, as insurance companies have done uh, dangerously for the last decade, uh, and high-risk investments like canoe. And they've worked because the Fed, the third thing the Fed has done is it's put a safety net underneath the market. 2013, when it toyed, um, made a faint effort at reducing its portfolio. There was a now famous taper tantrum, and Ben Bernanke said, oh, oh, never mind. You know, Bond markets only shuddered a little bit, then that terrified the Fed, and they said, oops, never mind. In 2018, the Fed again said, well, we're not going to 
stop amassing our portfolio, but we're just going to let it, it run off. It, it, we're, it, you know, we're not going to buy new, but we're going to keep everything on and just let it gradually sort of begin to evaporate. About six months later, we had the repo market collapse, and the Fed immediately stepped in with huge investments in the market. And clearly, and then again, we saw in 2020. Now, in crises, the Fed is supposed to be a provider of emergency liquidity, but that's not what the Fed's been doing since 2010. We saw Jay Powell in 2018. The Fed tries tentatively to raise interest rates just a little bit. Equity markets complain. Powell rushes in January of 2019 and FOMC reverses course. So there is no risk well, I mean, there's what we know. There's no perceived risk. There is plenty of risk. Oh yes, I'm get, sorry. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I want to get no, back to uh, a, a word that both you and I used. And I think I, I used it um, kind of uh, without thinking much about it. But I used the word with respect to wealth distribution. But nobody's distributing it, right? Doesn't wealth come to those who work and save and who, uh, to be sure, uh, to your point, Karen, play the game, buying low and selling high? The word um, distributed. It looks like kind of a sneaky uh, collectivist notion, right? The, you know, I can hear, I can hear the Socialist Workers Party saying that the <laughs> that the distribution of well, as if um, there were something besides the invisible hand distributing it. But maybe to listen to you and to read Engine of Inequality, maybe that non-invisible hand is the network of. Uh, policies and winks and nods and forward guidance that the Fed has used to levitate stocks, bonds, real estate, what have you. Maybe that's the agent of distribution. Is that a fair reading of what you're saying in this book? It is, indeed. And that's why I called the book Engine of Inequality to point out that the Fed, it doesn't mean to, it just yeah, well, has. You say so often in this book, in a, in a very civil, civil way, well-intentioned policies, but these people did well in school. I mean, I'm sure they tested fine on the GMATs and the SATs. And, you know, Ben S. Bernanke, Ph.D., uh, Evan, what was that, to, uh, the famous or the infamous Washington Post piece in which he said uh, that uh, we are uh, going to uh, buy stocks and buy bonds and the stock market is going to go up and... Jim, I actually had that in front of me just because I knew this would come up. He says, um, this is what him explaining in 2010 in the Washington Post why QE is going to help everybody. He says, lower corporate bond rates will encourage investment, and higher stock prices will boost consumer wealth and help increase confidence, which can also spur spending. Increased spending will lead to higher incomes and profits that, in a virtuous cycle, will further support economic expansion. So he was basically saying we're going to use higher asset prices to make people feel richer so they spend more. It seems like the problem there is that um, – stock ownership is concentrated in a smaller part of the population who have benefited tremendously from this uh, policy, but not necessarily the bottom 90% of the people who don't own most stocks. Yeah, well, that's, that's Karen's book. That is my book, and I call this trickle-down policy. I mean, the Fed, going back to Greenspan, has put tremendous faith in this, quote, wealth effect, trickle-down. Stock prices go up some. But yet the theory seems to be that stock prices go up and low-wage workers earn more, and it hasn't worked. You actually talk to these people. I mean, they respect you. You you have uh, uh, spoken before these various Federal Reserve banks, before the IMF. I mean, Evan and I could not get the invitation. Evan, what was the last time you were at the Fed? Yeah, I never. <laughs> but Karen, you 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 move in this world. What do they say to you? I mean, they must address your concerns. No. Well, they do, and responses are first of all. Um, we need more research. That's what the Fed's constant. No, that's, that is not true. There's too much of it. Well, you asked what they say. You didn't ask oh, me what sorry. I thought of what they said. So 
that's a different different set of. <laughs> Uh, All right, more research. They, okay. Yeah. And they say that fiscal policy is a far more powerful driver of inequality than monetary or regulatory policy. And then the third thing they say was, you're wrong. It worked. The 2010 to 2020 period was one of recovery. And I strongly disagree with each of those points. I mean, fiscal policy is critical. I agree with that, but that doesn't mean monetary and regulatory policy aren't. But the, the 2010 to 2020 period was one in which we had the weakest economic recovery since the Second World War. We had an acute redistribution of income and wealth. In my book, I have some charts that show what happens after 2010. And you see tremendous concentrations. You know, the top 1% of this country owns 53% of the equities. Top 10% owns 88, as Evan said. And the wealthy don't spend. Their so-called marginal propensity to consume is not, you know, they've already got a house. They own more than, you know, and cars. They don't need stuff. They're not out there. As Frances Perkins in the Depression pointed out, Families only, she pointed out, every family only needs one toaster. The the wealth effect did not work then, and it doesn't work now, and we see that. Worse still, it creates tremendous amount of financial instability, and we saw that in 2008. We see it again far worse in 2020 because of the intervening decade that made every aspect of uh, financialization and inequality still more dangerous in the U.S. economy. You know, speaking of... uh Financial instability, that can't, Evan, that's kind of our business, right? I mean, where would Grant's interest rate observer be without, you know, a little little vol, um, lots of uncertainty? <laughs> that's, that's useful stuff, right? right. So, which I, I think you're right. We should compile a, a couple issues. Right. So, um, apropos of instability and uh, long may it live, I want to uh, plug <laughs> our upcoming uh, fall conference at uh, October 19th at the Plaza. You know, Karen, we've been doing these conferences for uh, more than 35 years, I guess now, uh, uh, at least once a year. And uh, we even did one last year. It was kind of a mixed uh, in-person and um, dial-in thing, uh, or webcast, I guess. But, uh, you know, we had a actually had a, uh, had live living human beings sitting in seats watching people on stage at uh, the Javits Center in New York, which is Hence, cavernous facility that uh, houses, for example, the boat show and the car show, annual boat show. Well, there we were, 50 brave souls sitting in this. <laughs> <laughs> looked like looked like the Grand Canyon with tumbleweeds blowing by. <laughs> but still a must-be event. I know yeah. that for sure. It, it, yeah. it, even with the tumbleweeds, it, it's a must-be. Yeah, so this time uh, Rob Arnott is coming and Henry Maxey, all the way from London. Yes, from London, if he can get out. We have uh, Harley Bassman, the Uber Quant and James Rasta, a most interesting stock picker from Coast Capital. We have Rudy Frank, who runs Seabridge Gold. Uh, Will Thompson. Will Thompson, Evan, why don't you describe how he approaches ESG investing? Because I think this is a this is a really capital firm that he runs with a, with a terrifically imaginative approach. So tell us about how Will Thompson, in a few words, how he approaches uh, green stuff. I, I think it's easier if you compare what a typical ESG fund looks like. It looks basically like the NASDAQ 100. It has Apple and Microsoft as their biggest components. And it's true, Microsoft doesn't pollute a lot. But Thompson also makes the point, Microsoft isn't also going to drive reductions in uh, carbon intensity and actually help the environment. What he looks for is companies that are reducing their carbon footprint and making changes that actually will lead to better outcomes for, or at least he hopes will lead to better outcomes for the world. And that's where he's putting his capital and he's trying to allocate capital to companies making those changes. Yeah, where the, where the hockey puck's going to be, right? So he buys companies yeah. that are going to be green rather than those that uh, like Facebook that have uh, ticked all the uh, 
client pockets. Anyway, Mike Wilkins, one of the, the, the great short sellers and one of the few surviving short sellers is going to be on hand. Uh, Brian Lawrence knocked the ball out of the park last year, and who knows, he's probably doing it again this year. And I'm going to sit down in conversation with another Washington figure, Karen. Her name is Judy Shelton. Oh, interesting. Yep. And she came this close to running the Fed. I, well, I'm being on the Fed board, I, but I uh, lived in hope that uh, she, like you, Karen, has asked all the wrong subversive questions, and she would have been such a tonic to reserve for But anyway, back to Karen Petru and back to her new um, and most interesting book, which is called Engine of Inequality, and it's about the Fed and about what the Fed um, has done to us with respect to uh, exacerbating what might have been underlying trends towards inequality, or maybe not. The Suez Canal was in the news, of course, last week. In the day, 100 years ago, the Suez Canal was a great disruptive project, you know, because uh, all the capital had been sunk into warehouse space in, in London to, uh, uh, to house the uh, inventory that, uh, that was necessary with the long time required to go around the Cape of Good Hope, and the Suez Canal rendered that uh, capital investment uh, uh, profitless and uh, altogether shook up the world. And Karen, Mike, well, here's a question for you about inequality. Is it not possible that a lot of the prevailing inequality has to do with what used to be called a few years winner-take-all new digital kind of investment has has dumped imaginable, you know, dynastic sums of wealth in the laps of the innovators who don't need to hire many people uh, to make a Facebook as it tiny, tiny um, uh, employee base uh, compared to, say, the Ford Motor Company in 1910. What about the underlying dynamics of, of business activity in the digital age? Isn't that, does that not uh, contribute to your story as well? It does. And I have a chapter in my book talking about the other causes of inequality. And I think the technology boom and the nature of the, the digital empires uh, that you rightly describe is is a form of innovation and an important form of innovation, but it would not be anywhere near as disequalizing if it weren't is in, in part into an economy in which an array of things have gone wrong. The educational system makes it increasingly difficult for all but the children of wealthy college-educated people to go to college. Uh, at all, let alone without debilitating student debt. You look at with the skills distribution in this country and the massive un- and underemployment of high school educated white men, which did not used to be the case because the nature of work, going back to your invisible hand, it used to be that if you worked hard and saved, you got ahead. Now, if you work hard, you're working hard often at two or three service jobs. And if you save because Fed interest rates are so low, you lose. That engine of what was once not economic equality, because there was always distribution and rich people and poor people, but of the rewards of work is what makes the United States such a different, and I think why it's such an embittered and angry country now. Let's talk about uh, uh, how you, if you were running things, which for all I know you may one day do, I'm not really worried about the Petru plan for making things better. And I'm going to skip the first two because um, not that they're not worthy, but uh, the audience that we're speaking to is, I think, especially focused on uh, the not so inside baseball stuff that are at the Fed, but the, uh, the mechanics of central banking. So you propose uh, that the Fed uh, shrink its portfolio 
of interest-bearing securities, and that uh, it does something to normalize interest rate. Let's take the first one of these first, that is to say, a far smaller Fed portfolio. That's one of your fixes. So why and how is the Fed going about doing this? Is it start selling bonds now? No, the Fed is buying. I mean, the Fed is buying $120 billion right. of bonds to be sure, a month. But, but do you, you, would you prescribe that it stop that and begin selling instead? I would uh, for, recommend first and foremost that it issue forward guidance. I think it is really important not to shock the market. No, it's, you, I know you love all, Jim, but too much of it is not a good thing. Um, <laughs> I think we're all agreed on that. We, we don't need panics. Um, all right. So I, I think the Fed needs first to indicate not right now, as you know, its new monetary policy says that uh, it will be ultra, ultra, ultra accommodative um, for literally as far as the eye can see, um, 2023, 2024, maybe longer based on what quote moderate term means, based on what inflation means, based on what tea leaves look like. It's, it's impossible to know what, what the Fed's policy is. And I believe the Fed needs to reverse that and move instead to forward guidance that says the Fed will seek to normalize financial markets in three ways. A gradual increase in rates, that's tricky but doable. Most immediately, reduction in the portfolio, particularly important to prevent the negative feedback loop of the bigger the Fed's portfolio, the more banks hold and reserves at the Fed, the less resources go into the economy. We need to, we need to, to stop that. And then most importantly, by a new statement, not the normal, the post-crisis in 2008, particularly 2011, the central bank mantra, as Evan and I were discussing a little while ago, is whatever it takes. We, the central banks of the world, will buy as many assets and lower rates as low as we can, even well into negative, nominal negative, if that's what it takes to stabilize markets. I think the Fed needs to say no except in what the statute, its statute says it only provides emergency liquidity support, not it shouldn't stop solvency support, and it may only do that in, quote, exigent, unusual circumstances at penalty rates. It needs to go back to its mandate and state that now to the market so that market discipline resumes. And the next time the market is testing, tests the Fed to see if it means it, the Fed should step back and not chicken out. We could use a little bit more market discipline. I strongly believe that we, a lot of the excesses in the market, the canoe-type SPACs, are because, as I said before, the Fed's put an ironclad safety net, and its first step is to, to adhere to the law. And if it's not willing to do so, Congress should make it. Well, would you uh, – I mean, certainly uh, a step in the normalization of the distribution of wealth would be a bear market, right? It would be, I think it would be a market, that's a redistribution. I think a gradual equalization would result from an equalized return so that you make money in both the markets and from savings and from productivity. Right ah, now, this is, this, yeah. market this, rates of return are, are, you know, I remember when coupon clipping made you rich. <laughs> right. Well, those were the... Uh... Those, those, those are the rentiers who uh, got no love from political critics in the day either. That's uh, true. Hey, um, so where where should uh, the savers, as you as you uh, savers of the forgotten people of this economy, you'd expect, wouldn't you, that the uh, here's, oh here's a question for a Washington insider, as you are. <laughs> you're not a lobbyist, but you no. are certainly. 
Heaven for Fen. Denison, yeah, right. Okay, so the uh, National Association for uh, AARP, American AARP, American Association of Retired People. You hear nothing from this mighty, mighty advocacy and lobbying outfit about uh, savings rates, which is one of the mysteries to me of Washington, D.C. But where should passbook savings account rates be in Europe? In my book, I call for them to be a living return, right. by which I mean a nominal rate that provides for a real return above so that savings is a positive accrual. I don't say in my book whether that's 50 basis points or 500 basis points, you know, back in the day when passbook accounts had gave you 5%, because I think we have to evolve through that. But I think the fundamental criterion of interest rates needs to be that those who save are not impoverished thereby. Yeah. You talk about a, um, a family financial facility. Tell us about that. What do you advocate there? Well, that was I advocated that last year because, and I looked at what the Fed was doing in March of 2020. It was very much the same thing that it did in September, October of 2008, which it raced in to rescue the financial markets, which, to be sure, needed it partly because of the excesses we've just been discussing from 2010 through 2020. And it would get so even to the speculative, highly speculative, and junk corporate bonds, ETFs, it rescued anybody with a lot of money. But families, <laughs> families thrown into instant financial hardship by through no fault of their own, you know, working one day, thrown out of work the next, all of a sudden couldn't pay their rent, couldn't pay their mortgages, couldn't pay their bills. And that was a liquidity crisis as well. You know, it's far more um, and I think in a liquidity crisis in certain sectors of the market, which, which were really solvency risks covered up by liquidity rescue. And I saw no reason why the Fed was providing, viewed again, the wealth effect, thought that somehow if it rescued the financial system, it would help families. And it doesn't. It can, through its charter under current law, provide emergency liquidity support through the banking system for families thrown suddenly into financial distress. And I thought it should. And I think it's it, 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 in a similar situation going forward, it must. You know, one of the things that Evan has brought to my attention is the, uh, Evan, what's the stat that, uh, Karen, I know it's, I remember seeing it in your book as well, that uh, a shockingly large percentage of the population could not raise $400 to That's meet right. an unexpected emergency expenses. What, what percentage is that, do you recall? 40 it was like 40, 45 percent. It's yeah. about 40 so, It was 40 percent before COVID. So now so, it's 140 yeah. percent. So, so Karen, yeah. um, is, it, is it not possible that the, the welfare state itself has conditioned people not to save and that dependency upon the expectation of, finance, of, uh, of government support is what is responsible for the absolute lack of savings. Well, maybe the level of savings interest rates as well is a response. But um, why, why don't people take care of themselves? Because they can't, Jim. I mean, it's actually fascinating to me. I, I, I wrote a blog post a while back about savings rates for low and moderate income people, and they're actually their savings rate was remarkably high. And they're buying savings bonds. You know, 8% of low-income households have savings bonds. You know, remember those? They're, they're still out there. But the, people, but the thing that I think has been missed, the Fed focuses on price stability in terms of markets and traditional measures of inflation. But the average middle class, and I'm not even talking about lower income people, middle class families in the United States in 2019 before COVID had more debt than assets. 25% of middle class people were skipping medical treatments they couldn't afford. And it wasn't because they were buying too many pairs of jet skis. I mean, they, 
real middle class wages have not grown in real terms since 2001. So it, um, yeah, it, it's, it's hard for people to save when their cost of living, you know, household income is up, was up in, in 2019, and Fed took great pride in it. But if you actually look at the statistics, household income was up because more people in each household, were, more people were working and they were working more hours. And that leads to higher costs in terms of things like childcare and transport. And people were really, even middle class families were living hand to mouth. Well, there is there is a, 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 is a, a there's a constructive uh, tone of anger throughout <laughs> your book. You often confess to being angry and being mark that um, you have uh, taken a little zig or a zag in your career from analysis to advocacy. But I'm, I'm wondering if, in casting your eye over the landscape that the landscape that the Fed calls uh, cloyingly a good place, I can't stand that expression. <laughs> Neither can you, but. but is it not possible that we are comparing it with a netherworld that was a result of unique historical circumstances? I'm talking about the, uh, the time from 1946 to call it 1965, 1970, or 1971 maybe, when Bretton Woods ended, when the United States was so dominant in a world that had been floored by the Second World War and that you know we had all these fine breadwinner manufacturing jobs. Is that the fair comparison, or are we ourselves that the world has not changed on account of things that perhaps have less to do with the Fed than with the nature of work? Yeah, it's a really important question, but I know, think I know one thing, which is that the combination of post-2008 and especially post-2020 monetary and regulatory policy has directly and demonstrably caused greater U.S. income and wealth inequality. So it's certainly not a perfect solution. There's far many, many, many structural is issues that would continue to confront us. But you know, what are income and wealth but money? And which agency in the federal government has control over money? It's the Fed. It can do nothing but good to make financial policy more equitable. Does it solve everything? No. Could we? Can we go back to the, the middle class prosperity I knew growing up? I don't know, but I do know it doesn't have to be this bad. Well, one of the uh, features of regulation in the day, and to be sure it goes back um, several generations, was the responsibility of the stockholders of a national bank for the solvency of that institution. So up until the banking act of 1935, when a bank became impaired or insolvent, it was the stockholders who got a capital call, not public, or the FDIC and the socialization of great swaths of credit risk in this country. As a student, not only of the present, but also uh, to be free of the past, would you advocate such things as a, a restoration of stockholder responsibility to get away from the too big to fail idea? It seems to be the cartelization of the banks is part and parcel of the financialization of America. And shouldn't these institutions be less public utilities and more businesses with actual credit risk and actual owners to bear that risk? Oh, I think that's absolutely correct. I, I think, and in fact, it was the goal. One of the in my book, I talk a lot about this. There's been a tremendous discussion of all the post-crisis rules, the Dodd-Frank Act, and so forth, and the tough new capital standards for the banking system, the tough liquidity rules, all that. Dodd-Frank had twelve titles. The first title, Title One, created that all of these rules for big, big banks and theoretically big non-banks, but not a big non-bank's never been touched by one. But Title II created the Orderly Liquidation Authority, which Congress intended to ensure 
that a financial institution, including a money market fund, including a big bank, including and anything, when it failed, was rescued, if it needed to be rescued, if bankruptcy was not sufficient, um, it was rescued only at total cost to shareholders. What have we seen the Fed do instead? Protect shareholders. Not only should what you're recommending, that kind of market discipline, be reinstated by way of the market through shareholders who are at risk, but Congress told the banking agencies to do so, and they never have. It's completely unfinished business. All of the rules governing Title II orderly liquidation have never been completed because I I believe the Fed and the FDIC are just more comfortable thinking that if they're in charge, nothing will go wrong. They don't like the market. They don't trust the market. The market zigs and zags, and sometimes it looks scary, and they think they can do better than the market. And that's it's the nanny state. It really is. Well, I think, I'm not sure what you think, Evan. I think we have solved these problems right here and now. I think between your book and this discussion, all we have to do is uh, is implement it. And I know... <laughs> picky, picky, picky. <laughs> <laughs> well, it has been a delight, Karen, to talk to you, and thank you. Thank you so much. You've asked fantastic questions, and I I hope folks listen to you and read my book, and we can make a difference because this this country is just too angry, and markets are too risky, and the safety net is, is just too ironclad. This is a very dangerous set of circumstances that really does have to change. So, Evan, do we go out and buy a canoe, or what's the indicator? Um. I would sell it short before I buy it. Uh, actually, I, I, I think I just stay away from it. <laughs> who, who knows what the Reddit people are going to do with this thing tomorrow? <laughs> but um, yeah, Reddit's another topic. But but Karen, thanks once more. So on behalf of uh, let's see, Love, Youth, and Spring, and uh, the October nineteenth Fall Grants Conference. Thank you. Thank you for Karen for being here, and for you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening. Until next time, this is Current Yield Grants Interest Rate. Yeah.